Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast. And I'm coming to you, as always, from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. You know, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news. And I like to think that I'm bringing the good news in cancer research and care by interviewing people in life sciences who are doing amazing work. I call them brilliant but not famous. And well, the not famous part is ironic because they're all very well known and respected in their field by their peers and the communities that they serve. But my next door neighbor might not recognize their name. But they really are brilliant and committed to their work. And I love meeting these amazing people and sharing a little bit about them and the work that they're doing, the things that they're passionate about. And I also believe in serendipity. So I hope some positive things come from sharing their stories with all of you and to the universe. And so today I'm super excited to have on my show uh, Angie Caton. And Angie is a registered nurse and assistant nursing manager for oncology services at Northeast Georgia Medical Center. She's also oversees the tumor registry and community outreach and education and infusion, among the many other things that she's involved with, uh, including being the navigator for the lung cancer screening program. Angie has nursing degrees from Louisiana State University and Clayton State University, as well as a Master of Science in Nursing degree from Aspen University. And of course, everyone knows how, how much I love nurses because I'm married to a nurse and my son is a nurse practitioner. And I'm so excited to have you on the show. Angie, welcome to the program. Well, I, I just can't tell you how excited I am that, uh, that, that I got the call from you and uh, how we can share some of the wonderful wonderful things that are going on in the lung cancer community. I love it. And uh, for, for, for my listeners, Angie and I have worked together on some, some initiatives, and it's always a pleasure to see you. And, and the last time I had uh, worked with you, uh, some friends said, you know, we need to get Angie to share more of her experience. I said, well, I'm going to have her on my podcast. And so here we are. So it's great to see you. Um, I would love to have, uh, let's start this conversation by having you tell us about yourself. And I'd love to have you share, as, as you have with me previously, about your, case, your Cajun Southern upbringing. And, uh, and you've li- I know you've lived other areas in the South as well, but let's start there. All righty. Well, I, I uh, as mentioned, uh, I am a LSU graduate uh, with my first nursing degree. I was born in Louisiana, and then my father and his work we traveled a little bit about the South, Kentucky, Mississippi, but landed right back in the same area that he grew up and my mother grew up. And and I had the, the great fortune of being exposed to a Cajun culture of um, loving, giving, serving, eating, and uh and 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 just a just a wonderful background. Um I, I love being Cajun. I I'm I will always tell anybody that wants to listen that that's where my roots are. And then from there, I went, when I went to LSU, um, LSU newness, cause you know, LSU has some um, branches campuses that the nursing programs are at, you know, they have the medical college in new Orleans, but their nursing programs are scattered throughout. And so throughout Louisiana. So, um, I went there and started working in a, in a medical ICU for a few months, about six months, and then quickly, uh, and that was, I lived in a rural area. So when we talk about disparities and stuff, I lived in a rural area. I drove 60 miles one way to get to work. And um, and then an opportunity came up in a more 
more local area. We're actually in the same hospital that I was born at and um, in Louisiana. So I went to work there about six months after I started and I became um, I fell in love with cancer patients there. And I said, are cancer patients, I like to say better, people with cancer. And fell in love there. And then I had the opportunity to move to Atlanta in 87. And then um, when I started here in Atlanta, people that are from the Atlanta area, that the hospital St. Joseph's of Atlanta, and now it's part of the Emory system, but uh, my first oncology, pure oncology job was there. And I learned so much. I learned so much about life and about growing up oncology. And I also had the opportunity to serve in the Mercy Mobile Van. You know, St. Joseph's at the time um, had a huge outreach of the homeless population in Atlanta. And so I volunteered with that with that ministry there. And, and again, it, it all fit into what I really love to do every day. And um, then I changed positions after about 15 years there working on the oncology unit um, to Gainesville, which is north of Atlanta. And in that, in those respects, I have had, I was the educator on the oncology floor. And then I did a little professional development and community outreach and education. In the last five years, I've had, again, like Dave, like you said, I had tum I have tumor registry, outpatient infusion. I'm the lung cancer screening navigator. And I do a lot of things, and I'm involved in a lot of grant work. I love writing for grants. Um, my uh, family tells me I'm like a tightwad, and but I, I love writing for free <laughs> money that can help others, you know. And, and I pour everything I do right back to the patient, and always think. And I think, you know, is is all the work we do as healthcare professionals and as volunteers and wonderful organizations is that if you center your 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 work and your heart and your and everything your goals around the patient you know the patient is the center the patient everything comes out of the patient and you do it all with love and and caring and and i think that that is where that we can make the biggest impact is to let people know that we care and that everybody is important and even though they might not feel important or they might feel like they you know, they're behind a few a few wrongs that the equity is not there. That's what the, some of the work we've done, Dave, has been on equity and stuff. And how do you make healthcare more equitable when the world is not equitable? You know, we all, yeah. none of us are, things aren't equitable, right? We're not, we're not all um, made the same, have the same opportunities. But whenever you have a life-threatening illness like cancer, how can we make it as the best we can for you and your family and yeah. the best chance of survival and the best chance of living your life, which most cancers are chronic now. A lot of cancers are chronic now. How we make that that survivorship a better place. Because who wants yeah. to be cured of a disease and live awfulness and survivorship? You know? Yeah, right. So, so it's not why, you know, why would you want that to happen? You know, you because yeah. you want survivorship to be a good place. So that's a little bit about me and yeah. and, and my 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 love of people and I love to talk and uh, and again <laughs> I I can't imagine uh being another it being in another field other than nursing. And I've been a nurse now 40 years. Oh, for it was forty years, August the eighth. Oh, been congratulations! A That's a milestone. I love that. I Thank love it. My, I think my wife is at. She's getting close. 
yeah. like 35 or something. So yeah, all <laughs> in the same place. Yeah, all it in does. the same it place. Creeps, yeah. Creeps up, uh, creeps up at you. Well, and uh, what, what is interesting, and we'll talk about some of the amazing work that you're doing, but I always like to pull the thread, you know, from what you described from your, from your upbringing. And I know that your, your upbringing and your core values, you know, are really define the work that you do, but I, I know you come from a large family. I, I would love to hear the story of how you chose nursing. You, did you have other members of your family that were in medicine or did, how did, how did that decision come about? Because it, it is the perfect place for you. It is. And um, so my mother was a nurse and she didn't, she was a very traditional Cajun wife and didn't work until I actually started college till I started my nursing career, but all during all during our life, my mom volunteered. So she volunteered at nursing homes. She volunteered at the Red Cross. I remember when we lived in Mississippi that she was uh, volunteering when a lot of tornadoes had come through at one time. And, you know, she'd take us everywhere. We went everywhere with her when she volunteered. So I think that that spirit of volunteerism came from my mother. And I think my grandmother also uh, was a very loving and giving person. So I think that those female role models, but yeah, my mother is a nurse. My sister's actually a nurse. My brother was a medic. Um, I, I am the oldest of, of the children of the, my two siblings, but, um, but I do believe that it was, it was my desire uh, to be more like my mom and to be more like, um, again, what I, what I've, respected and what I saw to be valuable in her behaviors um, as a nurse. But other than that, that was that was the extent of medical we came from a lot of school teachers and and being rural. I had a lot of relatives that were in the farming industry there in uh, Louisiana, but I have a lot of school teacher. But I think that also helps me or help me want to be like a a nurse teacher. That's when I talk to school groups and stuff. I tell them, I said, you can be a teacher and a nurse at the same time. Cause what we do as nurses, a lot of it is education, you know, to our patients every single day. Absolutely. And it, I, it, and, and oftentimes social work too, you know, mm -hmm. I know where my wife works. That's a big part of her nursing um, uh, work is because she works in a, uh, in a city hospital in Boston. And so she sees a lot of, uh, a lot of everything. Right. Um, and so that's an important, and you, you talked about education, uh, and, and, and I know that, you know, we, we know each other well enough now and I, I, I totally feel your core values and, and how you, what you talk about is, is from a place of pure authenticity and I'd love, and you, you mentioned education. I'd love to have you talk about, you know, nurse navigation and how, you know, how, how important that role is. I've learned more over the years recently about, important role that 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 is for a cancer patient and and what and, and if that's not existent for a cancer patient the journey can be a lot more difficult so tell us about about that that the importance of the role of the nurse navigator well uh if you think about any journey that you have in your life personal professional it always helps if someone that might've been in that path before, or that knows a lot about that path that, that is there to, to just guide you. So I heard somebody say this once, and it's what we do for our patients is not push them in a certain direction. 
You don't want to push them. You don't want to drag them. You want to walk beside them. So see a navigator is kind of like walking beside them and like moving rocks out of the way or say, oh, there's a <laughs> bottle right there. Or, you know, hey, we might have to take this detour because there's a there. I, I hear there's a, um, a, a traffic jam that other way. So, you know, like when you're navigating appointments and stuff. So I think that the role of a navigator is is nearly essential and what whether it's a formal navigator or you have a navigator from a support group of someone that might have been through that journey before in a low dose i'm going to give you the lung cancer screening navigation apart is that knowing when when you get those results on a piece of paper and your doctor says i'll oh, come back in three months well they, do they worry that whole three months or you know you you try to give them things they can do like coughing and you know and and good pulmonary toilet things like that that are that are going to help maybe remove remove mucus in their lungs that's looking like you know a, a a mass or a nodule and you know just just letting them know if they have any questions that who they can call because you know if anybody and i know my, myself included tried to reach their physician's office and talk to a a person, you get a phone tree and then you get a call at 530 or six o'clock or maybe the next day. So sometimes just having that connection with the nurse that can answer something quickly for you that it will allay your fears or or reconfirm what you need to do and, and helping people stay on the right path. Because as we know, especially like with, and I'm going to focus a lot on lung cancer, but really any cancer, the earlier it's caught, the more options of treatment, the less costly the treatment, the less time spent in treatment. And so that nodule that might seem insignificant at the time, we just need to make sure they know to keep coming back, you know, keep coming back and, and, and you just be in there. And I navigate patients. Sometimes you, in, in this job or this role as an oncology nurse, people befriend you in different kind of ways. Like I have a, there's a fellow that's got uh three cancers, actually, three primaries that he and I uh, go to breakfast every now and then. And, you know, he'll ask me questions. And sometimes I'll say, is this for you or a friend? You know, is there, are you asking me, you know, my opinion? Because he trusts me to give my my opinion. And so if that's what he's asking for, then I'm ready to give it to him. And then there are people that sometimes just need that extra help it, it just even socially just to know that there's someone that they can listen to or put them in connection to another group. Cause I don't have all the answers and not every nurse has the answers, but most of the time I know who we can call or who I can touch base with or another resource I can put them in, in, in contact with. And I think I mentioned to you about food, you know, people are, you know, my Cajun background, my grandmother, you couldn't go to her house and she would be like cooking some. I went just this past weekend. I was at in Louisiana and I got to my aunt's house and she started whipping up pralines for me because she knows that's <laughs> she knows that's my favorite. And as I'm, we're talking, she is like made a batch of pralines right there for me to take back to Georgia and eat along the way from Louisiana. Georgia. So, you know, it's, it's about that love and how, and how food is, is essential to, to our well-being and our, and our, and our, in a way in our bodies. And so we, we express that and how can, how can people get better? My whole thing is how can people get better if they don't have enough food to eat? And so, so that's been a lot of our work here at Northeast Georgia and a lot of my, 
my focus is that, you know, it's it's not just about the best cancer treatments. If you don't have food to eat, then how are you going to ever get better? Yeah. And I think we we talk the same language. We talk about empathy a lot. Uh, and and I and I I believe in people like you who who take the time to get to know the the, the whole patient and not not just the the short amount of time to 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 your point you were just talking about that they're in a clinic or they're actually seeing face to face, but they they have a whole life. You know, ninety five percent of their life is not what you see. Right. And so, and I know that you do you focus on that a lot and you get to know the patients. And I I know you work a lot in. Uh, in, in rural areas. And I, I know you've given me some examples, but I'd love to have you share with us some of the disparities that you see, because when I, when I think of, uh, uh, disparities or diversity, oftentimes we think of, you know, in a city, you know, in a big city and, you know, Mm -hmm. different neighborhoods, but you're, it's also in a rural settings as well. So talk to us a little bit about some, some of the things that you see in your community. So, so some perspective that, the town that that I work in, I wrote the number down. We have about it's a population of about um, 140,000. The county that this town is is in has a population of 200. <laughs> so, so you imagine most of the people in this county are in this town, and then the rest of them are scattered out. And then all the other counties surrounding us, the 13 the 13 counties that we typically serve in our district to public health. Here in Georgia, the the District Two Public Health of the Northeast Georgia region, they all have way less than than two hundred thousand. So you can only imagine thirteen counties with not a lot of people. I think our catchment is maybe about a million. So you can see how bigger bigger areas are bigger. Um, high density population are so most everybody's rural. If you're not living in this town, Gainesville, Georgia, then most likely you are a rural resident. And and so that plays a lot into how you get here. And and I say get here, I, I wrote down too, we have this in Gainesville is the largest hospital in this region. And then we have a, a, a hospital that's a little bit bigger in and in about 20 miles from here. And then every they have seven smaller hospitals that are 50 beds and less in our region. So they're just little teeny tiny things that don't have all the services. As a matter of fact, we're the only uh, hospital that provides um, like chemotherapy and immunotherapy and stuff like that. The and, and most of the cancer surgeries are done here. There are radiation to uh, other radiation centers, you know, for radiation therapy for our cancer patients. But you can imagine there's a lot of travel then, you know, for a lot of patients. So those are, I think, some of the biggest barriers. And then I was telling you, I think some of the other barriers that we see are being are being single, being widowed, divorced, single. Uh, I've been reviewing all the lung cancer cases for the last six months, and I found that um, 86% or about 186 out of the 216 cases had at least one disparity, and 87 had two or more. And when I say that, whether it was financial or social or, again, their marital status, I think it, it that is very fascinating to me. And I think that that might be future um, opportunities to let our providers, you know, see that, that, that some of our patients maybe, and again, for more social and talk about social work, you know, maybe we need to make sure that our, our tobacco users that are single or divorced or widowed, maybe, you know, 
little bit more attention to them so that they get in earlier for screening and stuff. But yeah, I, I see lots of uh, lots of disparities. There's a, and we'll uh, I'll flip to a lung cancer, I mean a breast cancer patient, and you know she's a single mom of two children that lives in an area that is 45 miles from here, and. It doesn't have a job. Well, actually, she hasn't been able to work since COVID. She worked at a hotel as a housekeeper. She doesn't have a vehicle. And she she is having to come to, to Gainesville for for cancer treatments. And she has to, to talk to her friends to get her here. She doesn't, her sister's in Florida. She has no other relatives here. And she has to try to get friends to bring her here. And her friends don't have money and gas and reliable vehicles and those kind of things that when you get to know a person or you get to hear their stories because she's if you just talk to her she's upbeat and everything and then when you when you get a call and she's on the side of the road you know that one time she called to ask me if there was some transportation funds and i said yeah i can find some and i said how are you doing she goes i'm on the side of the road can't get to my appointment I was like, why? She goes, well, the person that came pick me up ran out of gas. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. So she needed an appointment at a pain clinic, uh, the palliative care clinic about her pain. You know, so somebody that's got metastatic breast cancer, young, and with all those barriers and all those, it, it, it's just, it's kind of overwhelming. So it, it, this person smiles and laughs and you know, seems happy every time I've I've met her. But those kind of things are the, you know, how you get to know people. And I mentioned another man that's got, he's had lung cancer and lung cancer treatment has another suspicious nodule popped up and he needs another appointment. And, and, and everybody's like writing in the note, well, he refuses to go, refuses to go. So when I talked to him, he was like, well, I'm living in my car in a Walmart parking lot and I don't have gas. So how is anybody supposed to get to an appointment if they don't have gas and they're in a parking lot? You know, and it, so it's it seems it might be only 10 miles away, but it could be a million miles away for him. And and do we does he have a recurrence or not? We won't know until we can get him to those appointments and till we put, you know, $50 of gas in his car and 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 you know, help him get there, but it takes a little bit to understand why people don't do the things that we think that they should. And that's what, you know, we, we mentioned that when our, when we talked to it, it, it hurts when people say people are non-compliant and yep. they're this and they're that, and we don't know their situation because we're quick to say they're non-compliant, but we're not quick to learn what their life situation is. And that is to me, one of the, the biggest disservices we can do to for the people that we serve is not hear their stories because not everybody has our life and our resources and in and, and again for whatever reason you know because there's a lot of blame about people that use tobacco you know so you're used in tobacco and you're spending your money on that and you know the people don't always understand the addiction of nicotine and how a lot of these people start it when they're when they're young, you know, I've been looking at those uh, lung cancer cases and now those 216, the average age was was 15 that people started smoking. So I just started looking over the last last few um, few months, start looking at that. And the youngest one was seven. 
Currently, we wow. there's a patient, 47, that started smoking when she was seven, and she's got lung cancer now. And so, you know, how do you, know, how do you blame a seven-year-old? You know, a seven-year-old didn't know any better. You know, it's not like she started smoking when she was 40 and made a, a, you know, a big adult decision to do that. She was seven, probably coerced, cajoled, you know, by family, friends, et cetera, to do that. And, and, and now she's, you know, the consequences and like for your, like for your, your, yourself and many others, about 10, 10% of that 216 or 22 so far in our region were never smokers. You know, so, you know, they're always wondering what they do. It's like, so, you know, cancer is not always a blame game. It it feels like it sometimes if you don't do this and you won't get cancer, but that's not true. You can do nothing. You can have lungs and get cancer. So those, that's the, that's the message is that that blame is that you've got it. We've got to treat everybody, you know, coming to that table with that, with that disease more in an equitable way, more in a fair way that, you know, we've, you've got issues and we're going to help you. And um, yeah, those are just two of the patients that are right this minute, really close to my heart. And I think about nearly every day and I wish I had lots of money to make things better for them, but you know, even all the money in the world probably won't make things better for them, but I can let them know I care about them and that our system try to work to make our system better and let our people know that, it's really not good to say somebody's not compliant. You know, I was like, oh, refusing. Oh, yeah, I'm refusing to go to an appointment. He's already been, he was a lung cancer screening patient. He went to a lung cancer screening and we found it early and he was treated. And then that was, you know, a year and a half ago. And now there's something else wrong. So we know he has the capacity to, to follow through on things. He just doesn't have the resources to follow through. Yeah, and thank thank goodness for people like you, um, Angie, because th- your your stories really resonate with me. Because when I think of empathy, that you know, from going from from while well, the patient just refuses to come in for treatment, or he's missing his appointment, so he refuses to come in. How many times would then that would just that would be the end of it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, but for you, people like you and many others who are empathetic, who take that extra step to say, I'm going to reach out to this person and find out what's going on. And I know oncologists that are the same way. I've, I, mm-hmm. I've, I have friends who are oncologists here in Boston uh, who, you know, says if I, if I have someone who can't get to a radiation appointment, I'll go, I'm going to go get them. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like yeah. you do whatever yeah. you can personally, but right. you're just one person, right. but I know that you do, a, but, th- but that's, I think an important point that we're talking about here. when we talk about disparities and I, and I, and I do consulting with metadata and I, and we talk about the word, uh, non-compliant all the time mm-hmm. and how it just drives us crazy as patient mm-hmm. advocates because you know you just made you just gave some great examples of somebody who would be technically in right. the record would be right. non-compliant right right because they didn't do what we said the yeah. the paternalistic attitude of of medicine in general is really where where it's where, where it really kind of falls into is that we think we know better we don't but we don't know the we don't know that who knows that patient's life better than they do. And we sometimes I think feel like we know best and we get that paternalistic feeling. And that, that to me is where we fall short when we don't let, we don't open our heart and our ears and our mind to what the patient's story is. And I'm not saying we all have the answers or the resources that we can 
fix everything. Because again, I, I could have a million dollars and my, my poor friend with breast cancer, I don't know that I could, I could if, fix all her problems. You know, even if I gave her a million dollars, I don't know if we could, we could, we could make her better or make it better for her. But I, I, I know we got to keep trying and that's no, what, right. But on that point, um, Angie, I, I wanted to make sure that I give a shout out to you because I know we've talked about, you know, beyond the other, you know, I, I mentioned some of the stuff you're doing, but I know you're doing a lot more. You love to write grants and get these. And we talked about one of the grants that you, that you've got recently. And, but you talk about the million dollars and yes, we, we can't solve everything, but you've talked about how even the $50 gas or $30 gas, whatever, like yeah. those are the gaps that you're, you're, you're filling. Right. And I knew that, I know you're proud of that work. So, um, you know, if you want to share more about, you know, how, how much that means to you that you can give these small things, but you, but you're the one who's working to get the, the, because you're a cheapskate. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> What was the yeah. what, what was the phrase thing your family used? Well, my family my family thinks I'm a like a tight like a, a <laughs> cheapskate. I try to save a dollar. I coupon. You know, exactly. I'm just that, I'm just that kind of person. And, and but, so, but talk about that how out. how those how how you beyond the couple that you just mentioned, like you know how that is something that's that, that's really important to you, and how you feel like you can really make a difference with small things to to get people to to close some of those gaps to get into appointments and things. So there, a quote from Mother Teresa that, you know, none of us do great things, but if we do small things with great love, then we can do great things. So, so, so with this, and I'm going to mention the company's Takeda, the Takeda Foundation Grant that I received earlier. I saved myself, uh, again, my organization. I applied for it and and I titled it Calling Narrowing the Lung Cancer Disparity Gap in Northeast Georgia. So with that, nearly every penny of that grant is going to patients. And so what, what I'm doing, and I see the white ribbon behind you. So I, and this came, it didn't come when I did the grant, it came afterwards with some of the white ribbon project work. And I know you've been involved in the white ribbon project longer than I have, but so when I identify a patient that has disparities, like I just mentioned, and most of those patients with through my work with infusion therapy, most all of our indigent or uninsured patients come through our infusion clinic, you know, that don't have a payer source and the others are cared for in the physician's offices mostly, but, but so I'm identifying them on a, on a daily basis and, and I can give them, I've just divided it up with the money that I have. I give them a $50 gas card and I give them a white ribbon. So the white ribbon, like, 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 uh, for the white ribbon project, you know, it's, so I tell the story of the white ribbon of how, you know, the, the plywood, it, we have some great stories around the white ribbon and how we've all had, I say, we, our communities had a part in making it. And when I present signing it and when I present it to the patient, it, it's been so rewarding with the, uh, I call it the white ribbon prize patrol. And so you come with the white ribbon, I go to infusion and all the nurses make sure that they've, and the staff make sure they've signed the back of it. 
And I, you know, I tell them about how the plywood came from Home Depot. I shoved it in my car. Um, we brought it to a tracing event where doctors and nurses and survivors have traced it and brought it to Chris Draft down in Atlanta. And he's cut them out. And I've gone back and picked it up. And we've gone back to, uh, to Gainesville. And teams of people have painted and signed them. And... And then I and I flip it over and I say, if you ever feel discouraged, you want to know that every name on here, you know, this ribbon has had a wonderful journey to get to you. And we want you to know how much we care about you and love you. And and then everybody on the back of this that has signed it is thinking of you every day. So I said, you flip it around and you know that we care about you. And I said, and to make it just a little bit easier for you today. Here's $50 that you can fill up your car. I usually give them a Visa card or a gas card, depending on what, what you can kind of see if they have the infusion clinic is is quick to let me know if they have transportation issues or not. And um and so what kind of card that they get. But you know, it it make there's not a dry eye usually in the room. So in in the I pull the curtain, so the patient's crying, I'm crying, the staff's crying behind the other side of the curtain because they know what's going on. And, um, for example, one man, I gave him a Visa card because my, my nurse, my lead nurse there told me he's having a lot of issues with transportation and he's having to pay people. So I thought that that might be the better better card for him. And he told me, he said, because of that card that day, that he was going to be able to pay his car insurance. And and yeah. it just made me tear up. He said he said I was gonna have my they were gonna cancel my car insurance this week if I didn't pay this week. And he said this will allow me to do my monthly payment for my car insurance. And 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 I just thought I was like he didn't say that he didn't come to the clinic and say I need money to pay my car insurance. And he didn't let any of it. We did not know that until I had given him that and he tell he told me that story, or that he and and another one, you know that. They didn't have food. And she says, I'm going to go take this and and I'm going to go to Kroger and I'm going to buy food for my family today. And those are the kind of things that the $50 and the white ribbon and the white ribbon, I think, just kind of seals it up with a bow. It's like a ribbon, a bow. It seals it up to to let people know that that it's not not as much about the money but it's about the love and caring and yeah, they have lung cancer and yeah, they might've smoked for 50 years and yeah, it it's, you know, might've been caused by smoking, but you know, we have people that it wasn't caused by smoking or that, you know, or, or start smoking when they were seven or, or eight. Yeah. Uh, my previous uh, record was eight until this last few months and it was wow. seven. And it's like, that's a really scary thing, but those are, that is what the ticket, and we're getting ready to kick off a huge lung cancer screening. And part of that grant, I have 115 uh, free lung cancer screenings, and I've partnered with, with um, we have two indigent clinics, we have two churches, and the health department, and they're all getting a few of them, and they've all been identifying patients ready to go, and we're going to screen the people that don't have insurance or don't have um, access or that are at highest risk for lung cancer based upon obviously their, their tobacco history. Um, but minority populations, we have a, two Latino organizations and one African-American church. Um, and then another church that has a mixed population of, um, of, uh, folks. 
and but they're identifying people that are at highest risk. And a partner with with a part, a light, a, that's another thing I'd like to stress upon that it takes a village or a community and everybody pulling a little bit of the load makes the load lighter for everybody. And so I couldn't begin to just put up a sign saying free lung cancer screenings and expect right. that I would get the right people that had the most need. But I partner with organizations that have those missions that are focused on reaching those folks that need it the most, need the help the most. And I think that that's what's going to make this Decatur grant. I've It's been so much fun. I've had so it's been so wonderful um, to help people with that. You know, I've also got a little bit of money in there for genetic counseling. If they have some biomarker testing that's, you know, that they're concerned about just, to, you know, have an expert to talk to. I also, if they have a copay, if they if they are insured and they have a copay of a hundred dollars, whatever it is, I've got money in there to help that. I've given that out four times so far. Most of my patients, and I've helped one person um, do a free, you know, get the free testing through through a company. So that is part of the grant too. Is that I that I'm I'm there to help people to so there's no delays in their care, you know, so that they mm -hmm. they know about it. And that we move on it quickly, so that if they do have a um, a targetable um, uh, biomarker, that um, that we can get help for them right away. So the the so that's that's a part. That's really all the Takeda grant is in a nutshell. But it has been I have thirty. I've given out thirty seven white ribbons, and I have forty two people. Um, have uh, been touched and like I have one person that keeps coming and again disparity so this this lady comes every she comes every three weeks for a week she travels on a bus with oxygen and she is not an old person and she has metastatic small cell lung cancer and she comes and she is the happiest sweetest person you ever met in your life and she she I keep she doesn't have, she can't get to the, the stores very easily because she takes public transportation. And again, it's hard for her to get around. And we bring her food boxes and I bring her yarn because she likes to crochet, you know. <laughs> so, so you make, you're making lots of friends, you know. I said, <laughs> I, my friend, she goes, what can I crochet you? I said, you get your Christmas presents taken care of because she's worried about crocheting things for her relatives and stuff. I said, High priority, you're getting your Christmas crocheting done. <laughs> said, and then it. you can crochet me a potholder when you have some extra yarn. But I said, right now, priority number one, get your Christmas work done. And um, but I you know, that. it's 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 about relationships. And I think that's yes, what drove drove me to oncology. It's about about connecting with people. It's what my Cajun roots are about. Uh, you know, you never meet a stranger when you're a Cajun. You know, you're all you're always loving on people. And, and I think that that is what, um, and I think that's what the white ribbon project too, you know, the community for the, the lung cancer awareness. Um, and I know you've been in it longer than I have. Um, but what do you, do you still do much with the white ribbon project? I know you've been on some of the calls. I'm not a part, I'm not like officially a white ribbon project person. I just have joined in on, on all the yeah, other yeah, yeah. activities. Yeah, I've been. I was involved from the very beginning, uh, from November of 2020. It was really, ironically, it was right about the time I launched my podcast, and uh, 
and I've been on the board, you know, since ever since uh, we became a, an official 501c3. And, um, you know, of course, I've been involved with bills. I've been to Nashville to, you know, to to build ribbons with Christine Lovely and the people at Vanderbilt and Sarah Cannon. And I've just had so many just wonderful experiences, as as you know, and the uh and I love the way that you've taken this. You've put, you've taken this to the next level with how you're uh, the the white ribbon with the uh, with the prize patrol. Yeah, right. Uh, I think that's amazing. I think that's really brilliant. And and I, and of course the the core of it, as we talk about community and but and the love that's involved and the support. And I'll tell you one quick story that when I gave the, when I gave a ribbon to Alicia Sequis at Mass General, which is mm-hmm. where I was treated, and we were standing outside the uh, the Yaki Building, and I. And I said, this was made with luck. It was made in my, I had made it in my driveway. And I said, it was made with love and it's delivered with love. And I handed it to her and she said to me, and it's received with love. And wow. that was the first time that that I had heard that. And it was just like, oh. I got goosebumps, you know, it was just uh-huh. because uh, there, that's the power that we're, that we're talking about. So I love, I love what you've done with that. And, and thank you for, for all of that uh, effort and how you've integrated that into the into the relationship building and the work that you're doing, the community outreach that you're doing, I think it really makes a big difference. So, thank you for that. I there's a, just a couple more things I wanted to ask you. Uh, we talked about, you know, the addition to tobacco and and never smokers. And one thing I that I always am trying to be as empathetic as possible about how I the words that we because language matters. And as a nurse navigator, you know how much language matters. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to have you just, if you could just quickly, like how the words that you use when you talk about smoking history or tobacco addiction and, and then, and, and never smokers, but like, there's no shame and there should not be any shame and there should not be stigma. Like, how do you, how do you kind of think through that and how you communicate with, um, with the entire community, because I feel like we're all in this together. I never smoke, but that doesn't matter. I mean, that's just my personal story. My mother was a heavy smoker. Um, so I've, I've seen that addiction firsthand for my entire, for the entire life. And she didn't die of lung cancer, but she probably would have eventually, she may have eventually, but um, so talk to us a little bit about you as a navigator, how you kind of are thoughtful about talking with with these different patients or the ones who are afflicted by a lung cancer disease uh, diagnosis? Yes, sir. I think that's a, so we are talking about empathy. So it's having empathetic conversations because uh, whether you're teaching a, a tobacco cessation class, and I, I, I ran a lot of the classes for a lot of years here um, for our employees, you know, when we first became tobacco free and they were getting surcharged and all that, and they had to come to class. And one of the best compliments I ever received from one of my fellow employees was that he said, I was, I was pleasantly surprised that you were not a finger wagger. And so, you know, like, don't do this and don't do that, you know? And so you, you meet them where they're at. And so that's, so, 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 even acknowledging or listening to their story about their tobacco use and even realizing that again, and to place blame on a person that started when they were a teenager, probably like your mother did, your mother didn't, she didn't, she didn't wake up when she was 50 and say, Oh, I'm going to start smoking today. You know, cause I think it's good. I think it's a good thing to do. So they, they, they start so early. So it's, it's, it's about trying not to blame them for those behaviors, but also realize that, that if, 
and, and a lot of the work that I do now is trying to just even get them to cut back just a little bit once they get a cancer diagnosis so that they can heal better, the radiation is better, their outcomes are better, and it's trying to present evidence to people that are, and they might or might, might, or might not be receptive. So finding out where they're at, are they, how are you, you know, with your, um, you know, how's that, you know, tobacco, are you still using tobacco? And, you know, like maybe some of the reasons why, and maybe if they're sad or if they're anxious, maybe there are other things that we can do for them. So trying to find out when they use tobacco and maybe where there might be an opportunity for them to be able to cut back. Um, but just listening and taking that and being matter of fact with it and not being judgmental. I might have mentioned to you too that sometimes I can look at tobacco histories and see that they have said one thing to their their healthcare provider, and then they're going for their lung cancer screening, and they tell the 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 CAT scan tech, the CT tech, oh, way different story. So it's usually way more because they know that that there's really no repercussions. Nobody likes. Think about it. Nobody. Nobody likes to get on a scale. So if we all did a little survey of our driver's license uh, weights, it might not be exactly what we weigh. And when we go to the dentist, we might not be as honest about how often we floss. And so, you know, there's there's lots of things that yeah. we, we are afraid to talk about because we know that that person's going to say, well, you should floss more. Or, you know, your BMI is, you know, 35 or, you know, whatever it is that, you know, we know we know that because we're adults and we kind of don't want to hear it. So we tell lies yeah. so that people won't talk to us. So I think with the tobacco, if, if we need to just be able to be open and say, you know, this is a history collection, just like I'm collecting your blood pressure, just like I'm checking your pulse. And then just the we can take care of you better as honest and as open as you can be with that. The same thing goes for alcohol. You know, when people drink, yeah. you know, we some people hide that. You know, it's not necessarily something something that you're proud of if you drink, you know, two, three glasses every night of something. And, you know, when you show up to your doctor, you know they don't want to, you to be saying that. So, so I think if, if we can be receptive and we can, again, like we mentioned, if you can open up your heart, your mind and your ears and just let that information flow. And it is just information, but it's important information that we use. So the, the, the people that are, that are tobacco users, if we don't get an accurate tobacco history, they might not get flagged for a screen that their provider with all the other things, the priorities that they have, they might might just skip over that if they don't see a tobacco history. And yeah. that's why nurses and medical assistants, and that's why it's important for people to be honest. It's important for us to ask in a, in a caring way of just like I would ask if what you had for breakfast, you know, yeah. you know, what are you, are you still using tobacco and about how much are you using? And then, you know, don't be fussing at them when you know you should quit or, you know, that's why you got the cancer or, you know, who knows why, Sometimes we get cancer yep. and it could be tobacco. It could be radon, right? We don't fuss about people that live in radon areas, you know, behind, yeah. you know, or that don't have a radon mitigation system or other cancers that could be blamed on other behaviors or that are linked to a behavior. Exactly. Doesn't mean yep. it's exclusive. Yeah. So that's how I go about it. It's I just a it. gathering information. Yeah. I love that. And boy, you know, we could talk for, you keep going on for, you know, another hour, um, Angie, I love talking with you and, and, and I just love 
uh, hearing about the things that you're doing. There's one thing I do ask every guest on my show before I let them go. Okay. And it's and not to put you on the spot, but outside of work, tell us something that you're passionate about or that people may not know about you. I guess I'm probably more passionate about my family than anything. I have two adult children, 33 and 35, and they're you know, and a grand dog and, you know, I don't have grandchildren or anything, but I do have a, I have a grand dog and, you know, their health and happiness is, you know, probably where I spend the rest of my time. If I'm not at work, I'm usually with one of them and uh, awesome. of course my, my big extended family, but yeah, that's, and I guess that's probably a, a mom thing, but, uh, but no, yeah. I, I, and I'm not surprised it doesn't yeah. surprise me a bit. So, and I, and I, as I always I always I call it pulling the thread, you know, of like hearing about your Cajun uh, upbringing and your family and the food and the and your your, uh, your aunt going when you were just in Louisiana making you uh, <laughs> making food and and all of it. I it, none of this surprises me, and it's just mm -hmm. such a pleasure to speak with you. And uh, Angie, thank you so much for you know all that you do for the lung cancer community, uh, the work that you're doing uh, in helping. Uh, close some of the gaps or at least help with some of the gaps and disparities and 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 health equity and um, lung cancer screening and just doing so much great work. It's an honor to have you on my show. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Dave. And, and again, keep up the you keep up the good work of letting everybody know about about the, the most important issues with people with lung cancer and probably any other cancer too for that matter. But thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> 